Psalm 9, if you have your Bibles or you can just listen. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice, and he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the people his deeds. For he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they made. In the net that they hid, their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Heavenly Father, thank you for every person that you've brought here tonight. Thank you for loving us, Jesus, in spite of our rebellious hearts and for providing um, a way for relationship with you into eternity, Lord. I ask that you would be with Josh as he um, is a conduit of you tonight and speaks to us, Lord, and that our minds um, and ears would be open. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Cersei. Well, it is so good uh, to see all of you uh, tonight. Um, <laughs> I was working on this message, and let's just say 36, it's going to be a little, little minimal on things to say, uh, but we're going to read a lot of really, really cool names. And like I said, one of the goals of, of uh, Fellowship of the Burning Heart is, yes, we want uh, to have this be an opportunity to dive deep into the scripture. Um, but really the goal of it is um, to go through the scripture together. You know, one of the commands that the early church, uh, you see again and again in, in the letters of Paul is that script, reading scripture out loud 
uh, to the community was, uh, was a major part of their liturgy. In fact, what we have as the New Testament were letters that were, you know, we break them apart over two years, but they were letters that were meant to be just read to the church. And then questions uh, were taken by the elders from the people about what did Paul mean by this, which would often end up creating the need for another letter to follow up, to explain. So sometimes the church got the letter read. I'm like, I have no idea. Can you imagine hearing the book of Romans read in one sitting the first time? You're like, what you... What just happened? Does anyone know what happened? They were like, I think we're gonna have to write him a follow-up letter. He's <laughs> gonna have to explain it. But then it's then it was this the studying, the taking in those the words, the discussions around them, and that's one of the goals um, with this is that not only do we want to take moments to to dig into the text, but we also we want to um, be able to say as a church that we read through the scripture together. Some of you maybe have never read the entire Bible, the Bible in its entirety on your own, and, and, uh, and that's okay. Some of you could be dyslexic, I don't know. Uh, there's all sorts of realities for us, and I think that as in most things, as a Christian community, uh, we tend to do things better together than alone. And that's just my, not that we shouldn't learn to cultivate intimacy with Jesus alone, um, but the primary thrust of the scripture is about life together. Um, it's very communal, um, and that's why um, we do this thing on Sunday night together. Um, I love the idea of if I can't do it alone, I'm going to find people I can do it with, um, and especially when it's things that are commanded by God to do. So we're going to jump into Genesis um, chapter 35 uh, tonight. Uh, Pip um, got so many good chapters last week, uh, and uh, um, and I'm glad that you got those chapters. But right now, I'm a little sad that you got those chapters. But I'm excited about this chapter. All of Scripture is God-breathed, and all of it is profitable. Um, and so um, what we just have to be looking for is how does it all point to Jesus? And I, and I think that that's always an important thing. If Jesus says, if you knew Moses and his words, you would have known that he's speaking of me. Uh, that was his condemnation of the, of the teachers of his day. So it says in verse 1 of chapter 35, God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. And he's speaking specifically of when Jacob sent his families forward. He rested, um, he rested his head upon a stone because that's what people do when they sleep. And he received a vision um, of angels ascending and descending upon a ladder um, from he between heaven and earth and God at the top of the ladder proclaiming, um, uh, proclaiming his continued promise, a promise he made to Abraham um, and a promise that he made to Isaac and now a promise that he's made to Jacob. And we're coming to the... To the the fulfillment of that, of that covenantal promise with Jacob, um, where this is the final time that he will be Jacob, um, in which for a second time he will be given uh, the name Israel. And I think there's significance in the fact that it's given to him twice. Um, it says, God said to Jacob, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves 
and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Um, I want to just pause there and, and take note of something that is going to be an important theme in the life of Israel, uh, which is the call um, to purification or the um, necessity of holiness. Uh, one of the, the signs of, of, that you'll see um, consistently before this is call to, um, to purify oneself. And in, in this time, that meant literally giving up gods, foreign gods. Now we think of that as something that's extremely archaic, like most of you aren't carrying around little pocket gods. Um, and I did have this really fascinating experience in, um, in India. I visited this house um, and um, we were talking to the woman that lived there and she said that she believed in Jesus. And we're like, oh really, you believe in Jesus? She goes, of course. And so she opens up a door <laughs> in this room and there were like all these statues of like different gods and there was a statue of Jesus. And like, she's like, I totally am down with Jesus. He's awesome, along with all the other gods that I pray to. And I, f I forgot like, oh, Hindu culture is different than Buddhism. There is a legitimate, it is a legitimate um, polytheistic uh, faith. It's not, it's not pantheistic, which is the belief that all things are a part of God. We're all a part of God, but it's polytheistic, many gods. Um, and in Jacob's time, all of the surrounding, like there, there isn't a nation yet. So this little wandering, you know, think of these, think of Jacob and his family like a little wandering tribe, very wealthy, lots of people, lots of servants, uh, but they're following the one true God. But like everyone else, a lot of other gods have crept into the story. And it makes me wonder also if Jacob himself um, possibly added to the pile. Uh, the fact that he knew to ask everyone means that he was tolerating false worship. We already saw this with his wife. Uh, Rachel had already taken gods from her father, from Laban, and hid it, um, hid it in her tent. And so we know that this, the, the worship um, kind of a polytheistic worldview um, was a reality. And so God, Yahweh, may have been seen as the supreme God among Jacob and his family, but that didn't mean they weren't gonna, you know, throw, throw a few prayers here and there to, to the other deities around for a, little extra, for a little extra luck. That was the nature of, the pag of this very pagan world. But let's take it into our context. This idea of putting away um, uh, putting away our idols. Uh, John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. That the moment you pull up one idol, it reveals, it's like a string that just reveals another one. And that's why I always say that, that our, um, today when I was talking about the difference between true and false worship, the category that doesn't exist is no worship. Uh, everybody worships all the time, everybody. 
There is no such thing as a person that doesn't worship. The question isn't, are we worshiping or not worshiping? The question is, is are we entering into true worship or are we entering into false worship? And what is terrifying to me about the gods that we have today is that our gods may not be little golden, you know, figurines, um, but our gods can be really good things. I've seen people make the Bible a God. You ever seen that? I've seen it a lot. That's a, that's a fascinating one to me. When the, when the Bible itself actually is more important than the Jesus of the Bible, when the Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Scripture, um, when sola scriptura actually overrides the love of the Son, um, I promise you, I've seen people that worship the written word and have no relationship with the living word. Um, I've been around plenty of cults um, that use the same Bible that we do, but they don't, they, the worship is of the scripture as this is a great testimony of how it is that I ought to live. Um, but they don't know the living Christ or even deny his deity. And I think that this is something that we need to understand. I've, I've seen the worship of, I, in my own life, I have entered into the worship of my wife, which never generally fares well for me, by the way. Um, anytime I have elevated Darcy to the, um, to the position of God, um, it, it's the guarantee that our, our marriage is going to become quite difficult because we aren't intended to be worshiped. Uh, it's why do you think our celebrities, um, our, our stars, if you will, um, generally have major problems because people were not intended to be worshipped. They weren't intended to be worshipped. Uh, it's, 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 not, it's not right. This is why I am so leery. I've been talking with my buddy um, Tim, uh, Tim Chaddock who uh, started Reality LA and uh, he, you know, he became a celebrity pastor very quickly in LA, the fastest growing church in Hollywood and he just couldn't handle it. He was like, I don't think this is right. Um, and he stepped down at kind of the peak of the church and decided to go do something hard and plant, and all church planting's hard, but planting in London as an American, um, you know, he's like, I've been super successful here. I'm gonna go to London and, you know, maybe it'll happen all over again, but we can do it right. And it was, it never, it, it, it never became bigger than a, than a couple hundred people, um, which is actually a very successful church, by the way, in the UK. Um, but he said it was so good for him to disconnect from that. I remember when, when his church, because he was a dear friend of mine, when he was in GQ magazine, and they even talked about like, not only is he, a, you know, a powerful preacher that doesn't, uh, that doesn't seem to compromise on, on um, evangelical convictions, he's incredibly good looking. Like GQ had this whole thing, of, and he is, he really is quite, quite handsome. Uh, but it, it's like, that's not good. And he's like, I've always wanted to write a book on just the, how, what an anathema um, celebrity is um, in Christendom. Like that it's, it's so damaging. My favorite Christian celebrity, he would be so horrified that I even called him that, is Tim Mackey. Because he can't even stink and say the word. I go, Tim, how has it, how has it been with the Bible Project just continuing to take off? And he goes, he goes, it can be hard. I'm like, like, what do you mean? And I just wanted him to say it. 
like, I go, it can be hard. He's like, you know, I'm like, that you're famous now? He's like, don't say that. He literally is like, like, I thought he was going to go like pale, like get sick. Um, because his, his success is actually his absolute refusal to even pay attention to it. He, that's why he doesn't do videos. He doesn't like to do videos of himself. He's like, I'd rather it be my voice with a cartoon. I'll do a podcast. I don't want to be, he doesn't preach very often. He just is not interested in that component. And I think it's actually what makes him such an incredibly effective communicator of the gospel because, and his success has come because of his commitment to scripture, not his desire to be famous. And I just, just encourage you guys, our idolatry is insane. It is easy in the pew to turn your pastor into an idol. I know so many of you have done it with me and yeah, some real problem in this church. <laughs> my goal is to be as honest about my brokenness as possible that that is not even a possibility. Um, but we elevate people. I ha I've elevated people up to like that person is closer to Jesus than me. We, we are masterful at, at creating gods for ourselves. And it's problematic. Let me, let me get into the, the more challenging and dangerous zones is, is when we take good things like our children, our spouses, our jobs, and we turn them into ultimate things. That is the most subtle kind of idolatry. And, and I've seen it, man. I'm like, when I ask myself, like, would I lay my son down if God asked that of me? I'm like, no. Like just, there's just like inside me, I'm like, no way, I'd never do that. Like, I'd be like, sorry, I'm not going to happen. Um, the idolatry, the ease at which we can make our kids idols is really, really powerful one. But that's why we are in a world full of religion. I mean, we are so religious. I, I guarantee that this is an idol for many people in this room. And the thought of life without it is like, ah. Uh, Especially if you're, if, if you're young enough where it, you barely remember what life was like before the iPhone. Um, I mean, my kids, it's like literally like just like an extension of their hand. It's incredible how savvy they are with it. And you always know you're in the presence of an old person when you dictate your text messages, which I do. Um, and so I, I, I think that our technology can be idolatry. I think our, our interests can be idolatry. I think our ministry can be idolatry. So the call here, this is not some like, oh, that's just some weird section of pagan, like just a pagan misstep. Um, I think what is, there's two things worth noting here is that idols are always going to be a problem on this side of eternity. For our idols are whatever it is that we give supremacy in our life over Jesus. So just be really honest with yourself and think about where those idols are in your own life because they're there. Secondly, um, I think the, the most fascinating and beautiful thing that keeps striking me um, as I dig deep into Genesis is how merciful God is because they've been traveling with all these idols this whole time. And what has God done for Jacob and his family? Nothing but bless them. They do all kinds of stupid stuff. We already dealt with the whole Dinah um, experience. I mean, I'm really sad I missed that. Um, you know, nothing like, you know, just mass circumcision and murder. It's a great, make a great movie. Really graphic and terrifying movie. Uh, but we already see the failure of Jacob's sons, um, the misstep. You've made, it, you've made me an, 
like an anathema to the people because of what you've done and got the opening of this statement Jacob arising go up to Bethlehem there's an there's an urgency here probably to protect them from um, people coming against them but what is the call my protection also demands this is a moment where God's like I've been tolerating it I've been merciful I've been compassionate I've been gracious I continue to be in communion with you but there is a point where the Lord says enough put it away and isn't it good to know that God the scales tip toward mercy but as Paul said should we sin that grace may abound and so I just ask you like as you take note of your own life I think this is an important text that forces us to ask the question of what is hindering the fragrance of Christ from being experienced in our lives what are the things that actually create blemishes on on the the white clothing if you will um, Israel's call to purify itself um, I mean when you get into Leviticus and all of the law around the priesthood and the necessity of like clean I mean all of it was meant to point to cleanliness was a big deal because it's always about the heart ultimately all of these things are meant to be symbols of the purity of heart so give up the idolatry that hinders you from the from experiencing the real intimacy with the God who never left him even though his whole household had a bunch of idols um, and I think that, that is a fascinating thing it's this is the necessary this will become the necessary steps in Israel um, when approaching the Lord in worship in fact one of the most terrifying scenes of Israel's life was when um, Nadab and Abihu the um, Aaron's sons offer what it just says they offered profane fire basically like they offered a worship that not only was not accepted like but they were immediately burned up like God was like boom you're going to come and be with me and become an example of you shouldn't approach God lightly um, and the many think that they were probably drunk when they came to the altar um, but that is the, Paul has the same condemnation of, uh, in Corinthians when he says some of you are using communion to get drunk there's just that picture of like pagan worship like false worship idolatry entering into entering into the community and he says because of this some of you have fallen asleep like literally this is broad judgment where people have died because they took communion inappropriately and that's the same but it shows us because the scales tip toward mercy, we're always shocked when, there's a, when, there is a, when God says, all right, enough. Um, and this is one of those moments where God says, I need you to put the stuff away. We're, we're making the move here where I am going to establish my people. Not because they're super godly, but because I have chosen you in my love and mercy to be a vehicle for all people. So, I just think that's worth commenting on. Um, and as they journeyed, a terror from God, notice their purification immediately becomes, their holiness becomes the very thing that strikes fear in the hearts of the people around them. As they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed 
himself to him. It's interesting, in the Hebrew it's actually plural. God revealed themselves to him is the actual Hebrew. And the reason that it says that isn't um, to be confusing, but because Jacob doesn't just receive a vision of God, he has also received visions of the angelic hosts that he has been, he has been um, privy to actually witness the heavenly council, um, which is a really profound thing. This like he has been given insight into the spiritual domain. And so he had, God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother and Deborah, Rebecca's nurse died and she was buried under the oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alon Bakuth. Um, and I, I think that um, the Bethel is just simply, what does it mean? The house of the Lord. It's the house of the Lord. God appeared to Jacob again when he came to Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Um, so this is a fascinating thing that his name, the name Israel means God fights. Although some interpret the meaning as he fights with God, which was the meaning given to us when Jacob wrestles with God and he says no longer will your name be Jacob it shall be Israel for you have what wrestled with God you have fought with God and prevailed but now God reminds him there's a second naming giving the same name but there is no connection to it's almost like the initial name has to do with Jacob the deceiver and that deception being wrestled out of him. You re I had to wrestle it out of you, Jacob. But now it takes, on, it takes on a more positive meaning as Jacob steps into his role as the very emblem of the nation Israel, the one that God actually does fight for and the nation that does seem to often fight against God. And so the question of is it negative or is it positive? I would say it is one of those moments where it is yes. Um, it carries with it the mixture that is, that is always at play. Um, but I do think there's significance in the second, like saying it again, your name is, he's already told him his name is Israel, but this time there's, there's no, nothing attached to it. It's just now I am the God who fights. Your name represents, and I think it's in the context of the people, they have purified themselves. God's manifest presence is, um, is literally ex being experienced. The fear of God falls on the cities. It's almost like his holiness is being experienced by the surrounding nations, giving us, it's all pointing us to something bigger. God's redemptive purpose in a world, but men prefer the darkness over the light. They're afraid of God because they feel their separation from God. I think that this idea of God's people becoming conduits of God's holy presence is a powerful thing. You know, there are stories of Charles Finney, and I don't know how much is mythology or if it's true, but Finney was one who was said to just take holiness so seriously, so seriously. There were, there, I've read a lot of his writings, and there are, I think there are times where he feels heavy-handed, maybe legalistic, but I would never question the absolute sincerity in that man's devotion. Uh, to the gospel and to evangelism. And there's a story of him visiting a factory in New York 
where him coming, this happened to him a lot. He would come into a room and people would just begin weeping. Just like he would, he, and I think, personally think, it's because he was literally that ugly. Have you ever seen a picture of him? <laughs> but it might be because he was holy. Um, and maybe it was both. Have you ever seen him? He really looks like, like Jekyll, like the, not Dr. Jekyll, he looks like Hyde. Like he, like his eyes were crazy and these big chops. Um, but it's tr- the stories are that his, his walk with Jesus was so intense that there was a like supernatural kind of sense of God has come into this place. Not he is God, but he is clearly a messenger from God. And, there, and he carried with him a holiness that I think, I think is a profound thing. I can't imagine, um, I think that sometimes we maybe become too content with the mixture. I know I can. Um, and this passage was deeply convicting to me today. It's like, we should never stop. The closer we get to Jesus, the more fully we see our sin and the more fully we should continue to surrender those areas that he's trying to show us. Just like with Cain, he tells Cain, listen, sin is crouching. You know what the problem is. We're always worried about the things that we might be doing wrong that we don't know about. Man, let's just begin with the things we know we're doing wrong that we just keep refusing to deal with. Um, I think that would take us a long way. Um, and I think that there is a, there is a holiness now that is going, um, going with this. It's really powerful. So, calls his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. This is God, um, you, the phrase is El Shaddai. Um, it literally means sovereign king of the world um, who grants and blesses and judges. I mean, it's a very, it's a very, it's, it's a big, all-encompassing name. Um, he said, God said, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you and the kings shall come from your own body. Notice what we are returning to here. We are returning to the creation narrative and when God created, he blessed them and he told them to what? Be fruitful and multiply. But what also are we reminded of from the, from, the create, from the garden narratives is he just says, out of this line will come what? A king. Um, so we're already being pointed back to the motif of the seed um, of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent um, and, will bring, and will bring healing. Um, so there's Jacob's narrative is coming to a close. Israel established the, the sons which would become the tribes of Israel are being put in place and now we're seeing a return to those original blessings and commands which is going to be a constant return to these motifs that we've, are, we've been exploring for, for a few months now. Um, I love this whole concept though. He, he blesses, he protects, he takes away life and happy. God, the sovereignty of God is that he gives and he takes away. And this is how he describes himself. I'm the one, I'm the one in the driver's seat. <laughs> it's essentially what he's saying. I hold the keys to life and death. Um, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob said, I really 
want to know what that looked like. Because every time I read, and he went up from him, I think because I was raised in a trailer that had Star Trek on all the time, that's how I picture it, just every time, just like, you know, just the beam, the beam up, just like he kind of disintegrates and is gone. Like, what was, what was the theophany like? How does God appear to him? I've just, there's so many questions I have. And, uh, and what I love is that it doesn't tell you because that's not what's actually important. I think it's the same reason we don't have an actual physical description of Jesus, um, is that what makes, uh, what makes the scriptures intimate is not what did God look like, but it's that God is knowable um, and that he cares and that he's engaged and there is real personality at play here. Um, and, there's real, and there's real care and concern for his people and his plan for redemption. Um, such a beautiful thing. Let's go on. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it, which once again, this is, this is, a, um, this is already pointing uh, to um, the activities of the Levitical priesthood of how, how Thanksgiving offerings, remember Moses is giving to the children of Israel with, with this, their own cosmology, their own history. Um, and there are all these things that are gonna point toward the, the Jewish sacrificial system and how offerings were to, how worship was to take place. And we see it in these little small ways, the, the pouring out of the drink offering on it, the poured oil on it, that recognizing God is the provider of all things. I give my first fruits, like I give what is best to him. I put away what is against him and then I surrender what is good to him. Um, it's such a beautiful thing, it's such a picture of worship. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Bethel, that is the house of the Lord. Now we move into the death of Rachel and Isaac. Then they journeyed from Bethel um, when they were still some distance from Ephrath. Rachel went into labor and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear for you have another son. And as her soul was departing for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni. Now Ben-Oni literally means son of my suffering. Um, it is ironic that Rachel's words to Jacob in, in Genesis um, 30 verse one was, give me children or I'll die. It takes a different turn here <laughs> um, for it is, it was having the child that ultimately brings her death. But notice what happens. She names her boy, the name she gives him represents the suffering that she's experienced in giving birth to him. But Israel does not let that stand. But his father called him Benjamin. Names matter. And we as parents have the ability to prophetically speak truth into our kids' lives. We can also speak lies into, our li into their lives. And I love that, that uh, Jacob had the wisdom to say, I don't want my son name his legacy to be I killed my mom <laughs> I am the source of my mother's suffering instead he gives him the positive name just like God renamed him from from this one who is a schemer one who fights with God now he is represents the strength of God so too he gives that same 
power to Benjamin and refers to him as the son, which means son of my right hand. Um, much, much kinder <laughs> meaning. Um, and I'm just gonna say, I like Benjamin better than Ben-Oni. Do you? It doesn't ring, it doesn't flow. <laughs> so Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Keep in mind, notice the, the change in tense. The author is, um, is writing, uh, the, as it's given to a people, they're like, these things are, can still be seen. This, this is, what I'm giving you is history. Uh, what I'm giving you is God's activity in human history, a human history that we can actually touch. See, you can still go to Israel and touch the history of God. You can walk in the places. Um, this is a powerful reality about the Christian faith. It's anchored in history. I love this. Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to stay. Israel journeyed on, the name is shifted officially, and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. Um, I want to just uh, point out too, uh, Rachel being buried in Bethlehem. Uh, there's not much stated about this. Um, it kind of kind of falls into obscurity, kind of like uh, um, Melchizedek. But it comes back uh, in, uh, with great emphasis in the prophetic writings, Jeremiah um, 31:15 um, and in Micah 5:2. Both of them are alluding. Um, uh, alluding to something Rachel weeping for her children in Jeremiah 31 Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because her children are no more Rachel's death through the birth of son also becomes the emblem the prophetic word that is going to be fulfilled when Jesus is born and Herod kills the children in Bethlehem trying to eradicate the Messiah and it's, it's, I mean once again just literary ninjas at play here. Um, there's these deep connections um, and these returns to these motifs that play, that play out. While Israel lived in the land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Why do you think that that verse is put into that? In, in, what, that it's, it's, doesn't that feel like a, just a major tonal shift? Like, oh yeah, and one of one of Israel's sons slept with, slept with his father's concubine. I mean, these, these guys are something. Um, uh, here's the thing. This isn't just about a guy having lust for someone. Uh, this, this probably has more to do with Reuben um, actually trying to establish himself. This is Game of Thrones kind of stuff. Uh, first of all, um, this sex with Bilhah, um, which Reuben, Leah's oldest son, would have prevented Bilhah from succeeding Rachel as the favorite wife. Uh, and by sleeping with his father's concubine, uh, he would also be attempting to take over leadership of the clan. So this is a power move. Um, and, but here's the, here's the thing that is, um, is interesting is the writer is doing something really profound. The older sons are actually being pushed out due to moral failings. 
to bring focal points upon the two that have the potential to become the lineage of the promised Messiah, the seed, which is going to be Judah and Joseph. We're not, we, we know later that it is Judah, but right now it's like the players are getting <laughs> knocked out and the focal point is coming down. Because you think about it, um, it says, now the sons of Jacob were 12, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. But the writer has already recounted the violence of Simeon and Levi in chapter 34. And now he briefly notes the misconduct of Reuben. And the list that follows shows um, 23, 20's next brother in line is Judah, the son of Leah. And with these older sons out of the way, the stage is set for the development of the lines of Judah and Joseph. Is it, this is very, very specific. Um, and there is methodology here. Um, and, and I think that it just shows how inspired um, the scriptures are and how, how focused it is. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. That's a good, long, full life. And Isaac breathed his last and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. So I, we're, we're moving, there's, we're wrapping things up. Isaac now is out of the way. Israel is established, the, his sons, we're already seeing players knocked out so that we can begin to move toward the fulfillment. But now we've got to wrap up um, the, the story of Esau. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna close this out in chapter 36 because it's just a page burner. These are the generations of Esau. That is Edom. I wanna just be really clear that scripture puts a tremendous amount of emphasis upon just like Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, that when we move into the prophetic writings, we're not talking about individuals any longer. We're talking about the nations that they represent. Um, but I did a little digging on, on, um, on Edom today. And I think that there are some verses that are worth noting that shows that Edom is not all, uh, is, is not just merely this place that God hates or a people that God is against uh, because we're, there's actually a redemptive moment even in, um, around the place of Edom. But I'll get to that in a second. But let's, let's just take in this list of names. These, um, says, then, these are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the Canaanites, Ada, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, Aholabimah, the daughter of Ana, the daughter, that's a, just a real dangerous name right there, daughter of Zibion, the Hivite, and Basemath, Ishmael's daughter, the sister of Nebaioth, and Ada bore to Esau, Eliphaz, Basemath bore Ruel, and Oholimabah, I don't even know how to say that, Oholibamah bore Jewish, Jalam, and Korah, these are the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. 
Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, and all his beasts, and all his property that he had acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into the land away from his brother Jacob. Um, notice, once again, this is very similar to Abraham and Lot. Two groups, massive possessions. Um, also, I, I think this is so fascinating. Um, but when you actually look at the war happening, I mean, thank God there's a ceasefire currently um, between Israel and the Palestinians. And there's all this misinformation because Americans love to pretend like they know what's going on. Um, and we have all this, there's all this, these, these battles right now that um, in the language that's being used of Israel is that they are um, colonizers or they are the ones who are occupying a land that is not theirs. But I want you to know that the scripture is wrapped up in history in both the Palestinians, which actually have their roots go back to the Philistines and the Edomites. And I mean, this is, these are ancient people groups who both have been dwelling in the land for thousands of years. And the stupidity of referring to anything that's happening there as colonizing is just mind boggling to me how dumb people can be because Israel itself has been a nation that has been conquered by at least eight different empires, probably more. Um, and so, yeah, pick your, you know, it's a little easier to be like, yeah, we definitely came in and knocked out uh, the indigenous people of, of the Americas. The Middle East is a complex and ancient and there are many, many people groups that claim the right to it, which is why this little tiny piece of land continues to be so contentious and scripture says that it will be so. It says that it will be so. Um, it's fascinating, I was just reading like every time Edom's even, um, I read through every passage in scripture that mentions Edom. And you know, it's really fascinating. You get into the prophets and Gaza is mentioned with Edom. I mean, it's like, these are places that were, are on the headlines every day right now. Um, and um, what we need to be praying, we, what we need to not offer is our dumb, uh, we're not experts on the Middle East. I'm pretty sure not a person in this room is that. Um, uh, and I think what we are is Christians who are called by Jesus to pray for peace. Pray for peace. That's what we should be doing. We should be praying that no more babies die on either side. We should pray that innocent people on both sides should not be falling victim to bad, bad players and politicians. And wars are ugly and, the, and there is no war without significant casualties. Um, and I think we should be praying for peace in Israel is what we should be praying for. Um, but we should probably spare our own, um, our own uneducated commentaries unless you feel confident enough that you've read everything there is to read on the history of a worn, torn region that goes back thousands of years. Um, and it's always been war-torn. <laughs> I mean, how many times has Israel conquered itself? Uh, so, so I just, I find that, I find it so fascinating. Like we can, we look at this lineage and it's like, the people that are there come from this. That is insane. That's, that's, that's fascinating. That, that is interesting to me. It says, then 
Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the members of his household, his livestock, and all his beasts, and all his property that he acquired in the land of Canaan. He went into the land away from his brother Jacob, for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together. The land of their sojournings could not support them because of their livestock, so Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. Esau is Edom. These are the generations of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. Um, by the way, not everyone mentioned in this list is um, descendants of Esau, but he is the head of multiple clans that come from this, this people group that we call Edom, this land that we call Edom. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Ada and the wife of Esau, Ruel, the son of Basemath, the wife of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son. She bore Amalek to Eliphaz. These are the sons of Ada, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Ruel, Nahath, Zerah, Shemath, and Mizah. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Holabimah, the daughter of Anah, and the daughter of Zibion, Esau's wife. She bore to Esau, Jewish, Jilam, and Korah. These are the chiefs of the sons of Esau, the sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau, the chiefs Teman, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gatam, and Amalek. These are the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Ada. These are the sons of Ruel, Esau's son, the chiefs Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These are the chiefs of Ruel in the land of Edom. These are the sons of Basemath, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Ohlebemaz, Esau's wife, the chiefs Jewash, Jalam, and Korah. These are the chiefs born in Olabama, the daughter of Anaz, Esau's wife. These are the sons of Esau, that is Edom, and these are their chiefs. Don't you feel like you're in one of those dreams where you're like, I just read that. I swear to you, I just read that. And then you just read it again, and you're like, I'm in an eternal paragraph, and now I don't know if I'm lost. This is a terrible chapter to get lost in, by the way. I have a very broken up, so, because I already felt like I had already said this. I did. I already said it three times. These are the sons of the seer, the Horite, the inhabitants of the land, Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Ana, Deshan, Ezer, and Deshan. These are the chiefs of the Horites and the sons of Seir in the land of Edom. The sons of Lotan were Horai and Heman, Hemam, and Lotan's sister was Timnah. These are the sons of Shobal, Alvin, Theodore, and Simon. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> I see them if you're listening. <laughs> that was pretty good, though. That's fun. I like that one a lot. It's like, uh, I expected more from you, though, from it, though, really. These are the sons of Zibion, Ai, and Ana, and he is the Ana who found the hostage. I just don't like that word. And in the wilderness, as he passed through the donkeys of Zibion, his father, these are the children of Ana, Dishon, and we've already said this, Oholibema, the daughters of Ana. These are the sons of Dishon, Hemden, Eshban, Ithron, and Sharon. These are the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zevon, and Akon. These are the sons of Dishon, Uz, and Aaron. These are the chiefs of the Horites, the chiefs Lotan, Shobal, Zibion, Ana, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishon. These are the chiefs of the Horites, chief by chief in the land of Seir. These 
are the kings. This is important. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, the name of his city being <laughs> Dinabah. It's awesome. Bela died, and Jobab, the son of Zerah of Bozrah, reigned in his place. Jobab died, and Hushum of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. Hushum died, and Hadad, the son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, reigned in his place, in the name of his city being Abeth. Hadad died, and Samla of Mas Masrachah reigned in his place, and Samla died, and Shaul of Rahbath on the Euphrates reigned in his place. Shaul died, and Balahanan, the son of Akbar, reigned in his place. Balhanan, the son of Akbar, died, and Hadar reigned in his place, the name of his city being Pau. His wife's name was Mahetabal, the daughter of Matred, daughter of Mezahab. These are the names of the chiefs of Esau according to their clans and their dwelling place by their names, the chiefs Timnah, Alva, Jephthah, Olabima, Elah, Penan, Kenaz, Teman, Mibsar, Magdil, and Aram. These are the chiefs of Edom, that is Esau, the father of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession. Um, I want to just point out something in verse 31. This presupposes a knowledge of kingship in Israel, this passage. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. You remember, Israel um, demanded a king. They were a theocracy. God was the ruler over their land. Um, but they wanted, they saw the kings of the kingdoms around them, and they demanded their own king. And actually, God is angered, but he actually also he submitted to their request. So fine, you want a king. And the first one was a disaster. Um, and like so often, you have the king or the, or the son. The, the pattern has already been established. The one who is established by the flesh. And then, then there's the one who seems to be a representation of God's choosing or of birth by, of the spirit. Then that, kind of, that kind of reality plays out. But the thing that I think is interesting here is... Um, all of this, the kingship even being mentioned here is already looking forward to the promise seed. Um, this, is, this is connected to something that what we intend for evil, God intends for good. Um, and I, I think that's such, a, such a, a, a beautiful and powerful thing. Also, um, I think it's important for us to ask about the question of Edom. Um, I have always found it quite frustrating uh, when my more, um, uh, my more reformed leaning friends, and when I say ref I'm reformed in the sense that and we all owe our existence as Protestants to the Reformation. Um, and I am very, very um, deeply indebted to the work, specifically the work of Luther, um, early Luther, but I'm also very indebted to Calvin. Um, I'm less indebted to the more extreme fans of Calvin who I think took took Calvin's theology places that he himself never took it. Um, and that, and, and there, were, there were branches out of Reformed theology that really began to move toward this idea that God only loves the elect and he basically hates everyone else and everyone else is created. It's this concept of double predestination, actually it's birthplace, if I'm 
not mistaken, is actually the Reformation in Scotland. It kind of makes sense. It's a very harsh, harsh land. <laughs> so the vision of God um, is also, it's beautiful um, and rugged, but it is also, there's a hardness to it. Um, it's not totally surprising that, um, that that particular strain of Calvinism, which is more what we would call extreme Calvinism, which is the idea that not only does God choose some to be saved, but he actually chooses most people to be damned. It, this is the idea, is to demonstrate um, his glory through his wrath. I'm like, yikes. Uh, I just think that that fights, you know, I'll just go with Wesley on that. Your God is, is my devil. Um, and I think it makes God responsible for sin. So there's an ugliness there. But uh, often really intense um, hardline Calvinists will point toward um, the specifically when you get into Romans 9, 10, and 11, you get into the um, um, Paul putting forth rhetorical questions. If God, he doesn't even say this is what God does. He just said, if God wanted to create vessels for destruction, who are you to speak to God? The point is God is sovereign and has the freedom to do what he wants. It isn't necessarily defining how God works. It's basically posing the question that, the question is, is do we have the right to question, like Job, when he comes, he wants to ask God questions. God's like, well, that's great, but I'm gonna ask you some questions instead. Um, I think that when we take passages like Esau, I have hated, Jacob, I have loved, and we turn that into God's feelings toward two people um, is a very dangerous thing. And we're not, and we don't play consistent either because Jesus himself used the same hyperbolic language. He says, unless you hate mother and father, brother and sister, you cannot be my disciple or enter into my kingdom. In other words, what he's speaking of is preference. And that preference is not that he hated Esau. He didn't hate Esau, he blessed Esau. He blessed him. Uh, he said, I will make him a, I will, I will do exactly what I promised Abraham I would do for his descendants. He blessed Esau. He saved his life. He protected him and Hagar. He didn't hate him. Um, and when, it, when we have judgment on the land of Edom, um, there is judgment on all sorts of lands that come against, come against Israel. What God is against is evil. Um, but the idea of him just hating someone randomly flies in the face of Jesus' own command for us to love our enemies. Because why would Jesus demand something of us that isn't first true in him? He doesn't. Everything he demands of us is because it's first true of him. The Ten Commandments are a revelation of what God is like. He says, don't commit murder because God isn't a murderer. He says, don't commit adultery because God is faithful. He's not an adulterer. There, the reality is, is that God is consistently revealing himself, but everything he reveals about himself is directly corresponds to his relationship with humanity. And so we have to be very careful when we, when we read into these passages like, oh, God hates that, he hates that guy. There's only one passage in scripture, I believe it's Psalm 10, where it says, do I not hate the evildoer? It's a poem. It also, there's also prayers that God would smash the enemy's baby's heads against the rocks. I don't think that's what God is in the business of doing. So we, if we don't take into, into consideration um, the, the very literary form we're looking at when we study the scripture, as well as hold intention 
what God has revealed himself to be like. And if it doesn't line up with what God has declared of himself, then I don't care who said it or how smart they were. Um, because it's God, I, I'm gonna take scripture every time over every interpreter of scripture. Um, and when it comes to the revelation that God, the passage that is, that is just declared more times than any other passage in the Bible is God's own description of himself to Moses, that he is merciful, that he is abounding in steadfast love, that he is slow to anger, um, and that he forgives. He forgives thousands of generations. God, and all we've seen so far, look at this, God blesses Jacob. His whole family is walking around with a bunch of idols. I mean, that seems like that would be enough to just be smote dead. And instead he's like, put them away. I love you, but put those things away. And the thing that motivates us to follow Jesus is to believe that he actually loves us. And so if I can't say that God, the one thing I can say for sure is that you can die unsaved, but you cannot die unloved. And I'll take that to my grave. And so I think when we look at Edom, let me give you a very fascinating passage to close out our time. And it actually comes, um, it comes from Amos chapter nine. But, you know, I've always focused in on the, on the condemnation of Edom as a nation because of its consistent fighting. Remember, Edom, Edom was the land that the Edomites would not allow Israel to pass through. Um, and God was not happy about that. Um, and if they become an emblem of the flesh. Esau becomes an emblem of the flesh. Jacob becomes an emblem of the spirit. There's all these archetypes that are played out. But when it comes to the nation, I always thought oh, Edom's just gonna be wiped out, right? This is like, that's just like that place is not gonna exist. But listen to this, Amos chapter nine. On that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. In other words, the Edomites, just like you and I, are people that God seems to be trying to save. And he says, there's gonna be a remnant. Yeah, there's some bad, there's some bad apples, but there's still, there's still people there. I'm still in the business of seeking and saving that which is lost. I love that we are connected, we Gentiles, unless you're Jewish descent, unless Jan's here right now. Uh, is anyone else here Jewish? Just out of curiosity. I always wanna be, but I'm not. I'm just a Heinz, 57 like most good Americans. Um, but I, I, I love this, the Gentiles were just put there right in that group with Edom. I'm gonna use Israel to save that group. Isn't that interesting? I never even noticed that passage before. And I think that's also what is being pointed at in Acts chapter 13. Um, and so, I, so anyway, I just think that it's important for us to see God's consistent with his character. Um, and yes, Edom has, uh, created a lot of issues and they do become a type of enemy of Israel um, but this is about a nation fighting against God's God's chosen people not God's some weird secret mean streak where he just randomly chooses to hate people that's that does not align with his character so 
I'm going to close with two chapters tonight because I don't feel like reading anymore and I'm still a little jet lagged. So, and I just think it leaves the Joseph story um, all intact.